0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our Calvary Kids pastor, Manny Colazzo. Hey, my name is Pastor Manny, and it's great to be here with you today to fill in for Pastor Nate. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter one. And while you're doing there, if you're, uh, since you're watching online, whether it's on YouTube or one of the other social media platforms, remember to subscribe to our channel, hit that notification bell, hit the like button, share it, share it on your social media platforms, just so that this is a way for us to continue to get the word out. It's a very effective way in a simple way. If you find this message or any of the messages are, are a blessing to you, um, Share it with your friends and your family. If you love Jesus, you'll talk about him and you'll share him and share his word uh, with your folks. So we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter one. March 28, 1984 will be an unforgettable date to Baltimore Colt football fans. You see, without any public announcement, Bob Ursay, the owner of the team, hired movers to pack up the team's offices in the middle of the night and relocate them to Indianapolis. An entire sports franchise literally snuck out of town under the cover of darkness while the city of Baltimore slept. And in his first interview after the relocation, Ursay told reporters the main reason that he decided to leave Baltimore. He said, You people of the press were hounding my family for two years, and I wasn't about to take it anymore. Well, did you know that that is also the reason why Paul left the city of Thessalonica? See, even though Paul's time in Thessalonica was brief, it was blessed. In just three weeks, the gospel had been preached with great success. We can read of that account in Acts chapter 17, and in verse 4 of that chapter, it says that some of them, the Thessalonians, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. You see, because of this great success, even the local Jews got jealous, so jealous that they instigated a citywide riot against him and his companions. This uprising was so violent and dangerous that the new disciples in Thessalonica thought it was best to smuggle Paul and Silas out of town, just like the cults did under the cover of darkness. And this is what causes Paul to write this letter. The work of the gospel was interrupted. It had barely gotten off the ground. There were still issues to address. And Paul feared for these spiritual newborns, that they weren't equipped to stand strong. And as you get into the letter, we get the sense that this concerned Paul deeply. How are they doing? Was my time there in Thessalonica a waste? Did any of the things that I taught them during those three weeks, did they have a chance to stick? Were they so undeveloped in their faith? Is it possible that their faith crumbled under the pressure of persecution and in the face of temptation? After all, how much real work could be accomplished in just a measly three weeks? And Paul, Paul just couldn't stand it. He he just couldn't stand not knowing how they were doing. He just had to know. And so we find out in the letter that he sent Timothy to find out how they were doing and to bring back news. And when Timothy returned, he had good news. Paul, it worked. The gospel worked. Their faith didn't only survive, but it is thriving. I remember a few Christmases ago, one of the gifts I asked for was a mechanical toothbrush, specifically after doing my research, the Oral-B Pro 7000. At that time, this toothbrush was considered the Cadillac of Oral-B toothbrushes. I'll tell you a little bit about it. It had six cleaning modes. It provided 800 brush movements per second. This toothbrush even had a two-minute timer a visible pressure sensor that would let me know that I was brushing too hard. And folks, can you believe that this thing even had an app that would give me real-time feedback on my brushing habits? Well, when I opened the gift, the box contained everything I needed user-friendly, easy to read, step-by-step instructions. It had a premium charger, a travel case, three different brush heads. It seemed like the manufacturer had thought of every detail so that I would have the optimal experience with their product. Well, guess what? After I charged it, it worked, and it continues to work to this day. Well, as I read Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, This is what caught my attention. You see, even though his time was cut short because of his sudden and unexpected departure, the gospel worked. When the power of the gospel was unleashed through Paul's preaching, it began working in the lives of the Thessalonians and it worked its way into the city of Thessalonica. Just like Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 55 It will accomplish everything that God wants it to accomplish. It's the same with his word, it says. It's the same with my word when I send it out. It will always produce fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to do. It will prosper everywhere I send it. So how does the gospel work? What can we expect to see or experience when it is working? And, and, and how do we know that it works? That's the question that we'll be answering today. But first, what is the gospel? If we're gonna talk about how the gospel works, we better be on the same page as to what the gospel is. Simply put, the gospel is good news. It's good news, that's it. It's the good news of how God rescues people from the bad news. You see, because of sin, the bad news is that before a holy and a righteous, perfect God, all people are declared guilty and deserving of eternal punishment. But I have some good news for you. The good news is that because of his great love and amazing grace for us, he promises to rescue anyone who repents of sin believes the gospel, and commits to follow Jesus no matter the cost, without excuses or conditions. And then, when Jesus returns on that great day of judgment, everyone who followed him is welcome and guaranteed acceptance into God's eternal kingdom. I don't know about you, But that to me certainly sounds like good news. That's the gospel. And that's the gospel that Paul conveyed and preached to the Thessalonians during the three weeks he was with them. And when it was spoken, when it is spoken into someone's life, when it is preached into a community or declared all over the world, the question we're asking, how does it work? Today, I want to show you three ways the gospel works, three ways that will help you recognize when it, is, when it is working. So let's read the passage. And as we read it, I want you to listen. Maybe you want to take up your highlighter or your pencil, or maybe you jot down some notes. I want you to listen and look for every time he mentions the word gospel or the word of God and pay attention to what he says the gospel did. Amen? Let's begin. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God and Father your work of faith, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. When you look at verse five, Paul said this, our gospel came to you. Folks, this is how you can know that the gospel works and that it is working. Number one, here's your first point. The gospel works its way to you. The gospel works its way to you. This is one of the ways that you know that the gospel works and that it is doing what it's supposed to do in your life. The gospel works its way to you. After Jesus' resurrection, But before he ascended, he issued one final command to his followers. He said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. This command, also known as the Great Commission, was the grand finale. Jesus' purpose for his coming and investing his life into his followers was to fulfill this mission. And it depended entirely on them obeying this command to go. There was no plan B. All of the eggs were in this basket. Well, guess what? We know, we can be confident that the gospel worked because Jesus' disciples obeyed the command to go. And the gospel eventually worked its way to Paul. We know that the gospel worked because Paul obeyed the command to go and eventually the gospel worked its way to the Thessalonians. As a matter of fact, if you were to continue to read his account of when he was in Thessalonia in Acts chapter 17, we read that Paul reasoned with the Thessalonians from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. The gospel came to Paul. The gospel came to the Thessalonians through Paul. And for reasons that become clear in chapter two, Paul wants them to remember that when the gospel worked its way to them, that he wasn't just blowing smoke at them. He wasn't some uh, salesman trying to sell them on some product. No, these were legitimate words. This was a true thing that was going to change their lives. Have you ever had someone make a promise but fail to act? Have you ever spoken to someone or heard someone speak and their words just seemed to be lacking something? They seemed hollow or they lacked substance. Maybe someone made a promise to you and their promises were empty and it lacked power. Well, after a while, if that continues to happen, skepticism creeps in, doesn't it? And you begin to doubt the credibility of anything that this person says. There's even an old Texan saying that describes someone who's all talk but lacks action. It goes like this, big hat, no cattle. Well, not Paul. In verse 5, he reminds the Thessalonians that his gospel message was validated. He says in verse 5, Our gospel came to you not only in words, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And then he tagged it with, you know. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. In other words, he's telling these Thessalonians, hey Thessalonians, you know the gospel worked. Because when it worked its way to you, you not only heard it, but you saw the gospel lived out. And you, that's what attracted you and convinced you to receive it. And so the Thessalonians responded and Paul is telling them, the gospel must be credible because Paul isn't just saying it; he's living it. And that's the first answer to our question. How does the gospel work? How do you know that it is working when it is unleashed and preached, when someone receives it and hears it? How do you know that it is doing what it's supposed to do? The gospel, number one, works its way to you and it is received by you. The gospel works its way to you and is received by you. This idea that the gospel works its way to people, you know that that's so consistent with the character and nature of God? This God who is relentless in his pursuit of us? For example, remember that time in the scriptures where Jesus compared God to a shepherd who leaves 99 of his sheep to pursue the one sheep who got lost? Remember that story? Or who does that? Who in his right mind leaves the 99 and to go pursue one. That, that's insane to me. That doesn't seem, but that's the kind of God whom we serve. This idea that the gospel finds its way to us, to be received by us, is so consistent with the nature of God. In that same area of scripture, he also compares God the Father, God he compares God to a father who runs in pursuit of his lost son when he returns home. Folks, the gospel works. How do you know that it works? It works this way because it's the way God works. But the greatest picture of this was when he sent his son to pursue us. But it gets better. He then sent the gift of his Holy Spirit to show us our sin. And to show us that Jesus is the solution to our problem of sin. And that same spirit is what strengthens us to live like Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. So he sends Jesus. He sends the spirit. And I'm not done. It gets even better. He then sends others to pursue us with the gospel. To tell us about Jesus. Oh the gospel works why does it work because that's the way God is is so true and so representative of his character the gospel being sent to us to be received by us even Romans 1:16 tells us defines the gospel in this way the gospel is an all-powerful God Exerting that power to rescue anyone who repents, believes, and commits to follow Jesus no matter the cost, without excuses or conditions. Well, how about you? Some of you listening here today, uh, for many of you, the gospel has worked. It worked its way to you because it worked its way to someone else who obeyed Jesus' command to go. But I wouldn't be surprised if someday, maybe right now, or maybe someday in the future, somebody's replaying this, there are some of you listening who are here today listening because the gospel is being faithful. It's working its way to you right now. And I'd like to give you an opportunity to respond to that. Remember what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news. It's the good news of how God rescues people from the bad news. See, you don't appreciate, you won't appreciate the good news until you first are aware of the bad news. That because of sin, before a perfect and righteous holy God, all people are declared guilty and deserving of eternal punishment and separation, rejection, and distance from from that God. That's you right now. But here's the great thing. There's good news, the gospel. The good news is that because of God's great love for you, his extravagant mercy towards you and his grace for you, God promises to rescue anyone who repents of their sin. Will you do that right now? repent, ter- admit that you have sinned and turn from your sin? Will you choose to believe in the good news of the gospel that God desires to rescue you and will rescue you? And will you commit to follow Jesus, no matter the cost, without excuses or conditions? That's the gospel. If that's you right now, if that is within your heart, guess what? You are accepted, you are received and loved by God. That distance that once kept you away from him has been removed and God looks at you and he says, you are loved, you are my son, you're my daughter, you are guaranteed access to me, to the kingdom when Jesus returns, amen. And if that was you, Go ahead and email us. Reach out to us. Go ahead and Google Calvary Monterey. Find us on our website. Reach out to one of our pastors. We would love to pray for you or pray with you and give you some next steps on what you should do if that's the first time you've ever believed and trusted in the gospel. Amen? Let's keep going. How does the gospel work? How can you be confident that it is doing what it's supposed to do? The gospel, number one, the gospel works its way to you and is received by you. Now, as Greeks, these Thessalonians were an extremely religious people. They worshiped and were devoted to many gods in the Greek pantheon, like Zeus, Poseidon, Apollo, Hermes, Athena, Aphrodite, and Artemis. But when these Thessalonians heard the gospel, We know that it worked because in verse 9, Paul reminds them that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And so this leads us to this next way that the gospel works. Number two, the gospel works in you and redirects you. The gospel works in you and redirects you. I think Jesus explained this point best when he said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, this word for money, it's speaking of one of the gods, an idol, the idol called Mammon. And Jesus illustrating this with this relationship between a slave and the master is perfect. Because an idol can be anything that competes with God to be the master controller over your life. And so, using that slave master relationship, a slave who belongs to and serves one master can't not, cannot at the same time belong and serve another master. It was impossible. Because the authority of both masters would collide and be in conflict over the slave. But also the slave's devotion would be divided. Who am I, who do I listen to? Who do I submit to? Reminds me of one time when a story I read about Mark Twain, who was lecturing in Utah, and a Mormon friend of his was arguing with him about polygamy. Well. After a long and rather heated debate, the Mormon finally said, Can you quote one single passage of scripture which forbids polygamy? Certainly, replied Twain. No man can serve two masters. (laughs) Folks, you can have two jobs. You can have two hobbies. You can even play two sports, but it is impossible to have two gods. You see, at the core of every human being, there is a throne and it is a one-seater and it only has room for one person to rule. Well, in this instance, speaking of the Thessalonians, we know the gospel worked. Why? Because the Thessalonians rejected the false gods that would have divided the loyalty and they turned and served the living and true God. Well, how about you? If you're wondering whether or not the gospel worked, does it work, has it worked for me? How about you? Is there a false God competing with God for mastery over, master control over your life? Is there something competing with God and causing you to divide your loyalty? Well, Manny, how can I tell, you might ask. Again, I think Jesus nailed it when he said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also in Matthew 6, verse 21. When he said this, he wanted his followers to examine their priorities. You see, Jesus knew how easily possessions can become obsessions. And so this mention of treasure, it's not necessarily about what you have or how much you have. It's about what has you. Is there an idol competing with God and dividing your loyalty? And if you don't know, if you're wondering, I don't know if there's something competing with God, Jesus says, follow the trail of what you treasure. Where have you stockpiled what you value most? You see, these words, cause us to perform an audit of our spending patterns. What am I spending my money, time, and energy in? For example, do you spend more time shopping at the mall? Well, maybe perhaps not these days, but do you spend more time shopping or on amazon.com than on your knees? Or what do you spend your time on first? That's revealing. Do you follow the stock market or your social media feed closer than you follow the scriptures? What do you treasure? Maybe your treasure isn't money, but it could be a pastime like golf, football, NASCAR, music, or even video games. Or maybe it's the job that you never take a day off from. Love. Love can also be a determining factor, could help you determine, is there something competing with God for my loyalty? What you love can reveal if there is a false God competing with God for master control of your life and dividing your loyalty. You see, because you love the things that you treasure. And you treasure the things that you love. I think it's also true about what we talk about. What do you talk about? Because we love the things that we talk about. And we talk about the things that we love. Perhaps those might be some questions for you to ask as you turn inward and seek to find out, is there a false God competing with God? Over mastery, master control of my life. Is it dividing my loyalty? And if the gospel is working, if the gospel works, then the gospel will work in you and redirect you. Number one, the gospel works its way to you and is received by you. But number two, the gospel works in you, then redirects you. If the gospel is doing what it's supposed to do, then it will continually redirect you away from anything that will divide your loyalty and compete with God. Now, this rejection of idols and turning to God wasn't the only change that they made. If you go back and review verses 6 through 10, we find out that the gospel also triggered three other significant changes in them. And I'm only gonna point them out. I'm not gonna necessarily discuss them here just to save some time. You might wanna discuss them with your life group or perhaps with a friend that you take, you're going through this passage with and you wanna discuss with them. Look at these three, three other things that they change, this redirection. In verse six, they started looking to Paul and Jesus of examples of how to suffer. In verse seven, others started looking to them as an example. And in verse 10, they started looking for Jesus expectantly. They started looking for the return of Christ with expectation. Those are some other shifts that were made because of the gospel. Those are shifts that you should see in your life and in the lives of others if the gospel indeed is working. The gospel works. It works its way to you and is received by you. The gospel works its way in you and redirects you. Let's move on to the third and final point. Look at verse eight with me. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Ikea, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. When the gospel works, when it is working properly and having its effect on a person's life, in a community, in a church, you will find, number three, that the gospel works through you and rings out from you. Number three, the gospel works through you and rings out from you. And there's a few reasons why you can and should expect to see the gospel working through you and ringing out from you into your circles, your church and community. One reason is that this is the example that Jesus established. If we really are followers of Christ, then we should mimic, imitate this example that he set for us. When Jesus first invited his disciples to follow him, He started with the end in mind. In other words, he told them ahead of time what they could expect to become when they ended, when he ended his time with them. He told these men, if you follow me, here's what I will make of you. Here's what you can expect to be made into after three years. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. See, that's what the gospel does. The gospel works through you and rings out from you. Another example we see at the end of his ministry, Jesus told them that he expected them to make fishing for people their primary focus. This is how Matthew recorded what he said. Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching those, those new disciples to obey everything that I've commanded. And surely, as you do this, as you make this your business, I am with you always to the very end of the age. The gospel works through you and rings out from you. And three, not only did Jesus tell them this, that he would be with them, as they made this their business. But he also told them that they could expect to be empowered to do this. In Acts chapter one, Jesus said, but you will receive power from the Holy Spirit when it comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Another reason why we can and should expect to see the gospel working its way through us is that this isn't only a concept that we find in the New Testament. Did you know that God's heart and passion to work through people, to reach people, is well-established throughout the entire Old Testament as well? For example, here's just one. When God began to interact with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, what did he tell Abraham? He's told Abraham, I will make you, Abraham, into a great nation. He's referring to the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Abraham, I'm going to turn you into a great nation. And as a result of me making you a great nation, notice what God is doing. All peoples on earth will be blessed. His reason for choosing and wanting to work through Israel was so that the nation of Israel could be a light and an influence for the other nations. So no wonder that one of the evidences that the gospel works, and that it worked in the lives of the Thessalonians, is that the word of the Lord sounded forth from them everywhere. Isn't this also the example that Paul and his team set for them? The only reason the Thessalonians had a chance to hear the gospel was because it worked through Paul and wrung out from him. Folks, the work of the gospel was never intended to come to you, work in you, and then stagnate and die with you. If it has, then I wonder Is it really the gospel? So how about you? As we conclude here, do you understand? Or or have you forgotten what the gospel saved you from? Remember the bad news. You have been rescued from that. You have been spared from that. Do you understand what awaits the person who hasn't been given the opportunity to respond to the gospel that has come to you, worked in you, and desires to work through you? Do you know what awaits that person? Is is that a real fear? Do you feel that inside? Is that a reality to you? If you've been spared of it, then it's true for everybody else. That's what awaits them. Does that break your heart? because it breaks God's heart. Folks, do you see the evidences of the gospel working in your life? How do you know? Have you ever doubted, is the gospel working in me? How do I know if it's working? When when you hear about the gospel being preached, when you see what's happening in our communities in our churches through the gospel or things in the, how do you know that the gospel indeed is having its impact and doing what it's supposed to do in your life, in your gatherings, in your community and throughout the world? Remember the three evidences that we were given, three evidences that we see in the Thessalonians life. The gospel works its way to you. The gospel works in you and the gospel works through you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've entrusted us with this precious message of the gospel. Lord, we don't want to take it for granted. So remind us, Lord God, of what you have saved us from, what you have done to rescue us. Oh God, that may that break our hearts as we begin to under, as we continue to understand, Lord, or perhaps our minds are open for the first time, that there are others who have not received the gospel, who are right now where we once were. Lord, if this gospel is working in us, if it has come to us and we've received it if that gospel is working in us and we are being redirected away from things that compete with you, oh God, may it not stop there. May that gospel work through us and ring out from us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.